back to, uh, to God's word in Ephesians chapter 2 here. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you uh, don't leave us as your children uh, stranded, uh, not knowing what you expect, not being able to uh, further understand you and understand all that it is that you've done for us and all that it is that you call us to. But Lord, you give us your word and you speak through it. Lord, it's we believe it's not just text, it's not just uh, lines and dots on a page, but it is a living word from you that although this is written by many human authors, that they were inspired directly uh, by you to write what uh, you would want to reveal of yourself. And Lord, we pray that you might minister to us this morning through your word. Help us, Lord, now as we worship you by listening to you this morning i pray father you might through your spirit speak through me this morning might we hear uh, from you this morning not just sort of from some ideas from from out of my head somewhere but lord would we hear this morning your word speaking to us and uh, pray holy spirit you might uh, minister to us and, uh, and and work on us and shape us and mold us uh, into the people you would have us be through uh, the power of your word this morning we pray amen um, one of the things you'll find certainly about the chapter this morning, um, and just as much actually about last week, let me find where to put this mask, there we go. Um, is that we'll no way be able to cover every single thing, um, and I'm not really attempting to uh, I speak long enough as it is. Uh, so you will probably find this, this would be a helpful thing if you're part of a DNA group. And if you're wondering as well, because I know it's one of those things as well, especially where we've still been on Zoom and things as well. Zoom is a bit of a challenge sometimes. Um, but to kind of get that kind of intentional conversations going, which, you know, the whole idea of those DNA groups is us intentionally shepherding and pastoring and discipling one another, then a really easy route into that might be to talk about these passages and pick up some you know some of the things some of the questions you might have had some of the things that we didn't quite get around to thinking about on the Sunday uh, but we'll try to do what we sort of can from uh, the passage this morning let me give you a sort of recap of where we've got to with Ephesians so far because Paul's argument here follows directly on from the first chapter here in the first chapter in those first 12 verses we heard about all the great blessings with which we're given in Christ and there was 10 of them that we could see that he's chosen you, that he set you apart, that he's adopted you, that he's shown his grace towards you, that is he's given you a favor that you do not deserve, that he's redeemed you, that is he saved you out of a vicious spiral of, of negative uh, behavior called sin, that he's forgiven you, that he's revealed himself to you, that he's given you an inheritance to come, that you're his celebrated child and that he's given you a deposit of all of his grace in the Holy Spirit within you. We're given all those great blessings there. Next, we saw how uh, all of this is communicated through the gospel and is taken up in faith. And it's continually revealed to us through the Holy Spirit working within us. And then Paul has prayed for the Ephesians and just as much really for us, and he's prayed that they be given the wisdom from God to appropriate, that is to take on board, to take hold of all that God has done. And then we close by seeing the immeasurable power of God, which gives us the confidence to believe that he can really work within us. And we see it most of all in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Now, 
we come to chapter 2 and we see how just as Jesus was resurrected to new life, that Paul has said is, is really the place to look to, to trust and to know and to have confidence that God would move and work within you. Just as Jesus was resurrected from death to new life, we too can be resurrected from death to life, from all that we are, all that we were, all that we have been. John Stott summarizes this chapter for us just before we begin by saying that uh, against the uh, somber background of our world today, Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10 stands out in striking relevance. Paul first plums the depth of pessimism about man and then rises to the heights of optimism about God. It is this combination of pessimism and optimism, of despair and faith, which constitutes the refreshing realism of the Bible. For what Paul does in this passage is to paint a vivid contrast between what man is by nature and what he can become by grace. And that is what we see in Ephesians chapter 2 here. And whilst the first part of this passage is challenging reading, okay, as we see how bad the bad news is for us, we then find that the good news of what God has done for us is far better than we could have possibly imagined. So we'll follow the argument here that is revealed gradually. And if you imagine sort of, you know, like when you see these clips of archaeologists uh, carefully extracting these artifacts from the ground and you see them gently uh, just shoveling the dirt away and gently brushing things away. And gradually here, Paul is unveiling this argument and we'll see it uh, come through in four pivots. If you think of uh, moving the sofa in Friends, and if, if you've ever been that one person who didn't get why people were just shouting at you, pivot, 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 that's why, what rock were you living under? We'll but we have four pivots here that shape the argument and the course of this passage. And the first one here is in verse one, we've made this big transition. Transition isn't the chapter number. I hope that you get that in case that you possibly don't. The chapter numbers weren't inspired. Okay, quite a difficult task to put all the chapter numbers and verse numbers in there. That wasn't inspired. Okay, in fact, actually, there's no punctuation at all in the original Greek. So you imagine being the, the poor translator trying to work out how to put this into some sort of uh, decipherable uh, message here. But the transition is that first word, you. Because now we've made a, a, a new journey now. We've, we've been thinking about the birth of the church, but now Paul is making a digression here to speak singularly. You won't see that in the English, but in the original Greek there, this is a you singular. Before he's been talking you plural, but now he's focusing in on the person. He's moved from the collective to the individual from the church to the disciple of Jesus. And he's now confronting each one of us at the same time. And what we realize is, and this is a very uh, antithetical, uh, sort of opposing sort of thought in the world in which we live in, which is not just postmodern, but probably whatever is post-postmodern. Postmodernity said there's not necessarily really any singular objective truth. There's just a collection of truths altogether. Post-postmodernity, actually, I think, questions whether there really is any idea of truth at all. Anyway, by the by, what Paul's doing is something that people aren't going to like to hear, and that is he's saying, what is true for me is true for all. There's no exceptions. 
I don't know whether, depending on your personality as to whether you ever sort of took this up, but there's no excuses, there's no notes. I don't know whether ever yeah, you made use of a note in PE to get out of it. And it was a really simple kind of catch-all thing that if you could get your mum or at least forge your mum's sort of handwriting and signature to it, it was a catch-all excuse to get out of doing it, wasn't it? I've got a note, so I've got a note, miss. In fact, once I, I had my appendix out and was delighted to make use of a note that said, you know, I couldn't be doing anything sort of uh, too exertive, otherwise it was very dangerous for me. And I gleefully used it to get out of the things I didn't like. Drama, barn dances, musical uh, rehearsals. It was fantastic. Uh, whilst also actually still playing football and all the things I enjoyed, um, at least for so long as I managed to get away with it. But here, there is no notes. There's no exceptions. What is true for me is true for all. He's focusing on, in now on you, and it's going to get awkward. It's going to get confrontational here. We were once dead in trespasses and sins, we're told. And there's two points here. There's, I hope I've got these kind of this medical language right. If not, Oh, well, <laughs> there's a diagnosis. There's a problem here. The problem is we're in sins. And then here's this prognosis. Here's the fate. Here's where this is going. In fact, actually, here's where it's already gone. We're dead. We're dead. But there's the diagnosis. We're in trespasses and sins. That is uh, slip-ups. Is, is a translation of trespasses there, slip-ups. And the particular word used for sin here is, um, it means sort of missing the mark, missing the target. It's actions that miss the mark that was expected, even if it may get close. Uh, me and Karis, when we were coming back from our honeymoon, we were uh, coming back on the Eurostar uh, back into London uh, and we were to catch a train from London, Victoria, uh, then down to Plymouth and then pick up the car and, and drive back home to Bournemouth and um, the Eurostar was delayed I think apparently as it turned out there was there was a bomb scare uh, somewhere in, in the Euro tunnel uh, and you know the the Surrey sort of chapter of the Women's Institute in front of us were irate about this they were raging uh, cream teas and Prosecco flying sort of everywhere at this so very displeased and wanted everybody to know and it was a rather boring 45 minutes of listening to this on repeat uh we get into the station obviously far later than we thought and we've missed several trains but we knew that there was sort of one to come and i think as i remember back rightly i i think we went to the wrong station first uh and so then having to sort of travel then across london again we finally get to the right station and I'm lugging the suitcase up all these stairs to the platform. We know there's one sort of last train still potentially we can catch. And, you know, would you know it as you just sort of get to the top of the stairs and it opens up to the platform, you see the train going past. <laughs> and it's that moment where you think, oh, is that the train that we want? And, you know, you try to be a little bit more positive and think, oh, it might not be. It might be another one. You know, that's, that's the train you've missed the mark. It doesn't matter if you've missed the mark by three hours or three minutes, you've missed the mark. And so we spent an evening sleeping or attempting to sleep on a train platform, very uncomfortable. Here we're trapped having missed the mark, having slipped up. But what, what, what mark have we missed? Whose mark have we missed here? Well, as creator, God sets the expectations and the purposes of life. And they're very simple. There's two of them, really. To glorify him 
That is in all things to celebrate and to praise him and to enjoy him. And yet somehow we find ourselves missing the mark in so many ways and in so many circumstances. That's the diagnosis. We're trapped in sin. And what's the prognosis? What's the fate? Well, actually, it's a fate that's already happened. We are dead. There is no hope. No hope of redemption. It is over. It's a done deal. This is a very different message of salvation as to what the world puts on offer. And it's important that we dialogue with that somewhat. That There's a difference here. That the world does have some sort of a sense of an idea of, of salvation. Of, of finding life in its fullness. Of finding yourself. It, because what it says is it says that I'm saved... I can live a life of fullness and joy, not futility. I can find purpose and meaning and freedom by being my most authentic self, by living my truth, by freeing myself from those terrible external expectations and restrictions and responsibilities that ultimately try to stop me from being who I really am. If only I could free myself from anything and anyone that may repress what I want to do and simply do as I want to do, I will finally be free to be me. And that is what it looks like and means to be saved, I think. We hear it ad nauseum around us. And it's important to expose that and dialogue with that because we can't accept that. It's antithetical because the gospel says precisely because you do follow at all costs your will over and against what is good, what is right, what is perfect before God, for you and for others. We find ourselves not alive, but dead, not free, but trapped. Salvation actually is to be freed from my narcissism. Freed from my narcissism that actually continually conspires against me to kill me. Salvation isn't to be protected from these nasty forces around me and outside of me and independent of me, apart from me, that pull me down and that stop me being me. Sin actually comes from within me. Greed comes from within me. Lust comes from within me. Anger comes from within me. My pride comes from within me. Nobody needs to encourage it. Nobody needs to train it. It naturally comes out. Jesus teaches this himself. So what goes inside of you that contaminates you? It's what comes from inside of you. Salvation is to be saved from my sin. Salvation is to be saved from my authentic self. The world says salvation is to be my authentic self. The gospel says, for goodness sake, I need to be saved from myself. My authentic self that is not virtuous, but is really rather vicious, if prodded enough. Why such a difference? Why does this happen? Let me just... Quickly, so because you might be thinking, well, why, why is there such a difference like that? I was watching uh, this week uh, a number of videos from a lady called uh, Vanessa Van Edwards. She's really fascinating. She's, uh, what, what was her title? I think it was a, 
behavioral psychologists, uh, some of those. Anyway, she's got a load of interesting talks on, on YouTube. But one of them, she's speaking at Google. And she uses this example. She says that uh, she's with an audience in Silicon Valley, and there's a lot of millennials there. You'll perhaps at least heard those be talk about. Uh, before you get upset, I, I, I am a millennial, so maybe that's okay for me to say something that's now going to be negative about millennials. Um, I had to Google that to check whether I was. Uh, apparently I am. If you're born between 1981 and 1996, you are a millennial. And she asked the crowd, what is the golden rule? golden rule being Jesus's teaching treat others as you would want to be treated yourselves so she asked this room uh, of people from all these kind of uh, big technology sort of companies and things what's the golden rule someone responds confidently I am awesome that's the golden rule I am awesome the difference in those views of salvation come down to this a deeply profound, true statement that's actually been said without them perhaps realizing it. The difference is so huge because of the starting point. I believe, perhaps if I'm in the world, that salvation is to be my authentic self if I believe I am awesome. Everything else is not awesome and stops me being awesome. Maybe I might accept that there's sometimes I'm not as awesome as I could be. I could be a bit more awesomer, but I just need a coach who'll help me with that. The world is starting by saying, I am already good. And anyone and anything that doesn't affirm me because I am already good is bad. That's why you hear that in all these conversations about identity. That's the starting point. That's the problem. Unless we get to actually discussing that and saying that the real problem that we have is that we disagree on the fundamental human state and nature. And so we'll never agree actually on this. The world says I'm already good. Anyone and anything that doesn't affirm me must be bad because I'm good. The gospel starts by saying that you're real, you're authentic, you're unvarnished, your inner, your hidden, your subconscious you isn't good at all. In fact, at times, others need protecting from it. And I find myself at times in conflict with that very authentic me and in fact it needs redeeming in many ways we might rightly ask here well how do we wind up saying how do we wind up in this kind of problem what was what is the cause of this well paul gives us three here Paul gives us three and he says this is a way in which we have once walked here Notice the use of the words there, walks. It's not about isolated actions, but an ongoing pattern of life. And yet there's hope there that he says we once walked like that. But look, Paul gives us three ways in which we've wound up in this position here. Firstly, the world's message. Look at verse two there with me. He says that we were following the course of this world, following the overall message of the world around us, that we get uh, thrown at us continually. Secondly, it's not just the world's message, but it's Satan's disruption, following the prince of the power of the air, the one who will do anything and everything to disrupt God's kingdom. 
in the dark night the sort of wise old uh, butler alfred is talking to batman and he's trying to uh, he he can't understand the joker can't get his his mind into that place of understanding how it is he lives the way he lives and alfred turns to him and tells him this story and says mr wayne some men just want to see the world burn it describes everything about the joker that ultimately he'll do anything and everything he can just to see things fall apart there is no more rhyme or reason to him and similarly satan will do all that he can to make things fall apart it's the world's message it's satan's disruption but thirdly it's also my own stubborn will look at this in verse three here that we were carrying out the desires of the body of the mind the passions of the flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind it's also partly to do with me i can't absolve myself there's a message of the world that leads me towards this. There's the disruption of Satan that contributes towards this and that tempts me towards this. But there's my own will that is naturally bent and inclined towards it too. There's responsibility and helplessness. It's spiritual and yet it's also guttural and natural. It's willful and yet somewhat coerced. It all combines in this description here that we were by nature children of wrath, estranged from God, lost not only by misdirection, but a relationship being broken down. A problem is being by nature a child of wrath. It's that I'm not already good. It's that I'm actually quite broken from the off. John Calvin, writing about this state of original sin, summarizes it for us. There's four ways in which I think we can see he summarizes this. Firstly, he's, it's genetic. He says it's a hereditary corruption and depravity of our nature. Another way of putting it, G.K. Chesterton says, whatever else may be in doubt, man is not what God intended for him to be. There's something about us that is corrupted, that is broken, that is damaged, that is not what God had made us to be. And that we inherit it simply by breathing. It's genetic. Secondly, it's holistic. He continues that it's extending to all the parts of the soul. The truth here is that it, my problem isn't that there's a duality. There's not two me's. There's not a good me and then an evil me. You know, a bit like Jekyll and Hyde. You know, you have the good Dr. Jekyll and then the bad sort of Mr. Hyde who comes out sometimes and it's this duality that if I could just kind of get rid of Mr. Hyde there you know Dr. Jekyll is is all right actually it's far worse it, the, the truth here is that actually it, it's really I'm never not simultaneously Hyde even in the greatest sort of heights of my best service as Dr. Jekyll I'm never not also Mr. Hyde there's a sin and an evil that's ever-present, tarnishing and twisting even my good endeavors. And yet, you might ask, well, can I not do good things? Well, yes, you can. Many people do, don't they? But you can't do good things without the sort of contamination of impure motives and thoughts and desires that permeate it. 
This is the problem of the Pharisees, isn't it? The problem of the Pharisees is not that they did lots of outwardly, obviously, bad things. Quite the contrary, they spent all of their time and their energy and being on doing outwardly good things. And yet Jesus says that our righteousness must exceed them. So what was their problem? Well, their problem was not doing bad things, as I say, but it was damnable, really not so good as you think, once you scratch away the surface. Once you scratch away that veneer of virtuosity, not so good as it may have seemed. It's holistic. It affects everything. But there's also a rebellion there, he says, which first makes us obnoxious to the wrath of God. And I think what he's trying to express is that there's a sense that even the knowledge that God might be opposed to me, I gradually over time and more and more so it increases. I'm just don't care. I'm just desensitized. I don't even care that this is offensive to him anymore. And the further I go, the more that is seen. And then finally, fourthly here, it's enacted and then produces in us works, which in scripture are termed works of the flesh. The problem is so, so much deeper and so much greater. Apart from the miracle of the highest magnitude, we're utterly hopeless and helpless. Man is dead in sin. And yet we have this transition here in verse four. As bad as the bad news is here, now we get some good news. Tim Keller writes of the gospel like this. He says, the gospel is this. We're more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And here's where Paul leads us to now from the depths of despair about the reality of the authentic self to the heights of God's wonderful glory and riches in grace. The good news here is what God has done to save us from ourselves. And look at this second pivot here in verse four. But God, perhaps two of the most amazing words ever penned. They turn the tide of this passage. They turn the tide of human history, of our own eternal destiny. Having said all that we've said about the extent of your depravity, your brokenness, but God, God, look at his nature here, but God, verse four, being rich in mercy, despite our sin against him, everything that we've said, despite our sin against him, God is full of mercy. That is, he doesn't give us what we deserve. He does not give us the judgment that we do deserve. And look at his motive here, verse 4. Because of the great love with which he loved us. It's a love based on his love. It's a love that in some senses is circular. You try to find, well, why is it that he loves? Because he loves. He loves us because he loves us. It's a love that's enduring, that's never-ending, because it's based on his loving nature, not on our performance. His nature, he's rich in mercy, his motive, that love with which he's loved us. Look at the moment in which he's expressed this to us. When do we receive this? Verse five here, when we were dead, when we were still in opposition, when we were still lifeless and beyond hope, not when we cleaned ourselves up, not when we'd gotten things together. We could feel a little bit better about ourselves because now we got ourselves in better shape. 
when we were still dead. What means does he use to do this? With what does he say? Verse 5 continues, he's made us alive together with Christ. His resurrection makes ours possible. How can we trust that Jesus might have this power to make us alive, that is to resurrect us? How can we trust that? Well, we began this morning with those verses of that precedent in nature, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We see the reality of resurrection in the world around us. In fact, it's not too far to say that if that weren't true and didn't happen, none of us would exist. No other life could possibly be if that weren't hardwired into the very creation. We see a precedent in nature. Secondly, we see that Jesus raised a man from death to life. John chapter 18, you can read of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It talks there, even one of the details in the story is, it talks of even the smell. That it had gone three days to the point that you could smell death, which you'll know if you work around people in a hospital or anything else beyond, or if you've ever been involved with doing funerals, that there is a smell attached to it after enough time. This is at the point that it is not conceivable to think that, oh, he just slipped into a coma and slips back out. Jesus raises him to life. And thirdly, we see Jesus himself raised from the dead. We can trust that he can make us alive together with him because it's hardwired into nature. We've seen Jesus do it for Lazarus. and We've seen Jesus himself be resurrected to new life. And how is this possible? It's the mode of this. How, what, what truth has made this happen? Verse six here, by grace, you've been saved. You say something very similar in verse 8 too, won't he? For by grace you've been saved through faith. Independent of my performance, he has saved us. And yet there's even more than this. Because Paul has narrowed in on the personal here. He's got very confrontational in a way that we've had to really face. That this is talking about me. Sometimes it's easy to talk about these things when it's people. You know, and you call to mind certain specific people that are kind of low-hanging fruit on that. You think, oh, yeah, they're really bad. Yeah, yeah, I know how they do that. Harder when it starts to be being honest about myself, isn't it? But now we make a bit of this transition here, because it's not just about my personal sort of salvation here. There's something far bigger beyond this. There's more, because actually all that Jesus has done here for us results in a new citizenship to a new people, the church, with new access and new rights. And the purpose of Paul's book is not to write to individuals, but it's to write to a church here. Verse 6 here, we're told that he's raised us up with him and we're seated us with him in the heavenly places. And you're this morning, if you're in Christ, whether you're here at Showcase or back there on Zoom in your homes, we are both here and yet there somehow. Why does God do this? What can he possibly gain out of this? How do we understand this? Because everything that we do in life, we do for some gain. And the instant sort of question we actually be, what about altruism? What about charity? <laughs> Even that. <laughs> Don't tell me that there's not some part that you feel good, you feel fulfillment. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to have. It's a good thing to use and to play upon in order to, to gain charity, isn't it? I mean, it would be, frankly, utterly odd if people were giving to any sort of charity, any sort of cause, with no motivation. You just think, this is just weird. 
do they have some tax problems or something they're trying to avoid surely people do things because they perceive even if it is sacrificial okay i'm having to give some money that the weight of the good feeling from it makes it worth it no i don't mind because you know i feel good that's a good cause i'm helping something but how do we make sense of this where it seems that there is nothing to gain for god here why does he do this look at verse 7 that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. God has a motive in it. There's something to gain for him here. It's to show off his grace. And Paul wants to make sure here, just in case, that we really do know that this is nothing that we've done. We've done nothing to contribute to this. We weren't needed. This isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God, he tells us. We've not leveraged him. We're not in partnership with him. You know what I mean when I say leveraged? You know, if I want to go and buy a guitar, there's a certain amount of leverage that I need in order to get that guitar from a person. There's a certain amount I need to be able to offer in order for that person to perceive that it's worthwhile them letting go of the guitar for me. And it's going to be an amount of money, isn't it? And if I can reach the appropriate amount of leverage, I can get the thing that I want, but I'm going to have to give something up for it. We've not in any way leveraged God. There's nothing he needs. There's nothing he wants. And we're certainly not in partnership with him. We've done nothing except receive. There's nothing that we do that in any way contributes to it. There's nothing that ultimately convinces him that somehow we're just that little bit more deserving than somebody else. No. And it's not even that our faith is somehow that one good work that we had. No, even that was a gift. Why does he do it? What's his purpose for us here? Verse 10. As we close this section here. We're his workmanship. There's all that's good within us now has his stamp on it, has his fingerprints. Anything that's good within us has come from him, working within us here, created in Christ for good works that he's prepared for us beforehand, that we should walk in them. In the last session, we, we heard about how we walked in trespasses. And here we read how now through new life in Christ, we might walk in good works. Man is dead in sin, but man is, secondly, alive in Christ. Thirdly, we see Christ, the peacemaker. And now, if you're sort of playing uh, minister cliche bingo, this would be the sort of moment to get your dabbers out, because our third pivot here is therefore, and I'm going to ask that horribly cringeworthy question that preachers do of what is the therefore, therefore, uh, and here in this case, in light of what God has done for us in Christ, and that is bringing us from death into life in Christ. Therefore, in light of that, then what? Well, here we see verses 11 to 12 here. Humanity was alienated from God and from each other apart from Christ. Verse 11 tells us here uh, that you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision here. And so there was an ethnic and religious division here. 
And even within the church, uh, we know from history, we know even now, it's been in the news over the past couple of weeks, isn't it, with the Church of England, that we have sometimes struggled with this just as much as the culture around us. But there is an ethnic and religious division here. You Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision. They were alienated from one another. But secondly, we're alienated, separated from Christ, verse 12. We're divided from Christ as well as each other. We're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, the commonwealth of the people of God. And yet here we see this uh, change here, verses 13 to 18 here, that humanity restored to communion with Christ. And we see, firstly, how we're pursued. Look at verse 13 there with me. That those who are far off have been brought near. Jesus, in facing the wrath for our sin, has welcomed us all back to God. But it's more than a welcome. Because a welcome sort of implies that you stand there waiting for somebody to come and you let them in when they come. This is something more. This is actually having gone out and pursued us. God have found us and brought us back. We've been pursued. We've been freed. Secondly, here, look at verses 14 to 15 there with me. That um, we read this here that for he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He's broken down that hostility between us. So how has he done that? I don't know whether you'll notice that there in those verses, that he's done that by abolishing the law. And it's important that we understand what Paul means by saying that. He's not abolished the law as in he's thrown the law out. The abolishment that he's talking about is not throwing a law out because the law was wrong. The law was bad. This was in and of itself somehow... Uh, unable to do what God would want it to do. No, it's not uh, abolished in that sense. What it means is that the demands of the law have been met in Jesus, so that now that sort of demand over us has been thrown out. Now the hostility has been removed, principally between us and God, but now by extension between one another as well. We've been pursued, we've been freed. We've also thirdly been renamed. Look at this in verses 15 to 16 here. We, we read a bit of it there, that we've become one new man in place of the two. We are now unified by our primary identity being our relation to Christ. Hope you said we have lots of other ways in which we're identified, don't we? But our primary one is our identity together in Christ. We have lots of other ones underneath that that... It's not saying here that you should suddenly start to sort of pretend as if we're all uh, from the same background, from the same place, with the same uh, kind of personalities. No, there's many other identifiers that, that leads to a diversity amongst us. But what brings us all together is recognizing our primary identity as being brothers and sisters in Christ, making one new man in place of the two. And then fourthly, we see that we're reconciled. Again, both to God and to one another here. But we're told here that he's reconciled us both to God in one body, that is the church. And so then, if that's the case, what right do we possibly have to separate ourselves from one another? If God has reconciled us to himself, 
Surely this ought to work its way out in the life of the community. See humanity restored to community here. But lastly, in this section here, verses 17 to 18, we see Christ, the missionary, who left his father's side to restore humanity with God and with each other. We're told here, verse 17, in light of all of those problems of our being trapped in trespasses and sins and us being dead in them. Verse 17 here, what does God do? He came. He came. He makes the move to save us. What does he do? Verse 17, he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. When he says far off and near here, he's again playing on that thing of Jews and Gentiles, Jews who've grown up with some knowledge and experience and understanding of God and his, uh, and his law, and those Gentiles who actually have no understanding and for many of them come from a background of pagan temples. Very difficult analogies to carry over exactly today because by and large we don't have that kind of tension and experience. Very natural for the church in its early days, having obviously come out of Judaism, uh, to have that. But for us, maybe we might see this in, in a similar way in terms of people who are very religious and those who are not. Those who have not had any kind of church background, don't really know the sort of unwritten rules of, you know, what, what to say, what not to say, and, and, and everything else. Peace to those who were close and peace to those who were far off. No favorites, no outcasts. We both have access, we're told here, in one spirit to the Father. So that through Christ, all divisions are cast aside as all are welcomed in him. Paul gives us again here, I mentioned it last week, and I'm sure we'll probably come to it again over coming weeks, is that Paul always gives gospel implications. Uh, what I mean is that Paul addresses behavioral dysfunction with the gospel. Another way to put it is to say that, you know, when Paul addresses an issue of behavior that needs sorting, he doesn't just give a sort of Christian how-to. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. He instead retells the gospel and sort of shows you, well, if this is all true of what Jesus has done for you, then think what this might look like for you as you express it out in your life. So that what he does is he doesn't do that thing of giving applications. You know, an application at the end of a message about money would be to say, go and donate five pounds to someone, work out who it is that you give it to. That's an application. That's no good because it's brainless. And for many people, that's utterly pointless. A drop in the ocean. For others, you know, contrastingly, that will feel like a lot of money. And that's actually really, really difficult to just go out and just do that without sort of thinking. Applications aren't very good because they don't recognize that we're all in different circumstances. A gospel implication says, actually, here's the truth and reality of the gospel. Now you've got to do some work to think. What would this look like for you? Who's God put you around? What are your circumstances? How do you live this out where you are? It's much better. It's what Paul always does. Here's the problem. that The religious here, the Jews, were tempted to exclude the irreligious, the Gentiles. And before you get annoyed with religious people, vice versa. Non-religious people attempted to do that to religious people too and to look down on them. It, it works both ways. But there's the problem. But for them here, there's also that added sort of issue of the ethnic dimensions thrown in as well. Because what happens is a sort of shorthand. 
you know what I mean when I say that is that when, when you want to kind of quickly get all the details in you have to reduce it down to a short hand there and all this other detail gets redacted down to just the simple statements and this is what happens and this is why it's a problem because listen to what happens here for them is that what they begin to say is Jews that is those born to Israelites or in Israel are religious which means they're good Gentiles, that is anybody born anywhere else, born to anyone else, aren't religious. They're bad. And before you get annoyed with them, not so long ago, we did a similar sort of shorthand. If you're born in the UK, oh, you're born in a Christian country. Therefore, you're a Christian. Therefore, you're civilized. You're good. For people who are born outside the UK, oh, that's not a Christian country you're heathen, you're uncivilized, you're bad. Ignores history, ignores the reality of the church history of apostles very soon after the death and resurrection ascension of Jesus going out actually across the known world at the time into other places. But the problem that happens is that if heathen equals not British, which for a time in history it basically did in shorthand, and that, let's be more blunt about that, means um, African, Asian, Latino from another part of the globe. Now, people's virtue is being defined almost entirely by ethnicity. Do you see the problem that happens as the shorthand comes in? And that is exactly what happened for a time. That becoming Christian isn't becoming British except many missionary ventures that went out left people with the message that it was. And at what point will all people, regardless of ethnic background, in this case, be afforded the same respect, the same rights, the same status? And we've had a report this week that says that this is a problem that's still ongoing to some extent. And you can read some of those stories of people within the Church of England struggling with this. I worked for a vicar who experienced that and heard it from him firsthand. Because he was of Indian background, people coming to his lawn to cut them with nail clippers because they said, well, I thought this is what you liked in your country. Assuming that, that because he's of Indian background, he must also still believe in the sort of caste system. And there's a problem, isn't it? That this division of re religious and irreligious can also take on these other elements of ethnicity and everything else. And it gets messy and ugly. And the gospel here is the exact opposite. It's this one new identity that we are brings us all together from different backgrounds and different places that by no means are you expected or should you or would it be healthy for you to let go of no those are very much still there it's just that our primary identity is who we are in christ so paul ends now with a picture for us of the life of the people of god here we've seen man dead in sin man alive in christ christ the peacemaker and then fourthly finally here the church christ's new people in verses 19 to 22 we get that last pivot here in verse 19 with so then and he's transitioning to his conclusion of the argument here the result of all of this 
has been to create a new people, the church. And look at how he puts it here, verse 19, that we're no longer strangers. No longer, uh, the, the original Greek there is, is xenos. Uh, it means guest of the house and aliens. The word there is paroikos, close to the house, a temporary dweller, a refugee. One who sort of lives there, but doesn't have the rights. This is a people in which actually now there are to be no class divides, no inequalities. It's a people where actually everybody belongs. Why raise this? Well, many commentators suggest it may well be that the church here in Ephesus, as across actually the empire, as I say, that people are trying to come to terms with how do we make sense of our Jewish heritage and yet also you know, we're not just continuing Judaism, there are some differences, there's some discontinuity there, but how do we make sense of this? And how do we, you know, in a right way, sort of balance this out? We've got people from two really different backgrounds here, and, and how do we find a way forward as one new background? That actually the church in Ephesus was struggling, you know, and they were making some mistakes, as actually we find in many other the churches too. And as I say, as we can still find even, even now, that we don't always get this right. You are fellow citizens, we're told here, with the saints and members of the household, the family of God. There's this struggle here that once we're strangers, we're aliens, we're kind of near the house, but not in the house. But now we're members of the household of God. So the church isn't like a family. It is a family. It's not like a family. It is one. And we have this contrast here between aliens and household. Here we're no longer aliens. We're no longer power oikos. We're no longer near the house, but we're members of the household. House, verse 20 here, built with the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What does Paul mean here at this point? Apostles and prophets, what he's getting at is the writers of scripture. Apostles no longer exist. By definition, an apostle was one who had seen the risen Lord Jesus and had been directly commissioned by him to go and be witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus because they had seen it and could say, as John says in one of his letters, I write to you of what I've seen, what I've touched, what I've heard. But we're built upon the foundation of the writings of the apostles and prophets who Peter himself will say that were carried along by the spirits of God. Founded upon the word, the teaching of scripture, but with Jesus, the fulfillment, the hope, the promise, being the one who holds us together as a cornerstone. And then look what happens in this people here, in whom Jesus, the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Two purposes here, simply as we come towards closing here. Firstly, to grow. And then secondly, we're to house the presence of God, just as the temple did. How does this happen? Well, it gives us two ways there as well, doesn't it? That we grow in him, we grow in Jesus. Why does Paul ask of all things that he could ask for the church in Ephesus, all the different problems that he could ask uh, for God to minister into? What does he ask? He asks for two different kinds of wisdom that people would understand who God is and what he's done. How do we grow in him? And secondly, 
We grow because we're joined together. It's a synergy. It's that the sum of the parts doesn't add up to the sum when we're put together. I've probably explained that exactly the wrong way. It would look like the sum individually of what we would contribute wouldn't add up to what we get out at the end of it. That in being joined together, exponentially, we grow. We grow more than we ever could on our own. And then here, as we come to the close here, Paul restates this for us. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. wonder if you sort of really thought of that, even as you this week will go out into your week, into work, into school, into university, through your home, amongst your family, uh, amongst your neighbours, who you live around, your friends, that you will be able to witness this week simply by being there, simply by being a part of the household of God and therefore having the Holy Spirit with you you are bringing God with you, even before you speak. Now, I'd advise you that it'd be good to speak too. Uh, probably look a bit weird if you just stand there silently. But even in just so doing, even in just being there, you're bringing God with you. When the scripture talks about us being a kingdom of priests, I think this is some of what dramatically changes here in the period of now being the church. Priests before would go into the temple to do their work, and it would only be them who could do that. And there was a small number of them, and it was incredibly insecure work. In fact, the priest would have rope tied around his ankle in case he died in the holy place. So that if they didn't feel any movement for a while, they could at least drag his corpse out, lest it sort of rot away in there. Everything was about people coming into the temple, except people would come to the temple just to be reminded by every single piece of furniture and every single ritual that you do that you can't get close to God. And here's everything that has to happen before you can even approach him and for his anger to be removed. Now, to be a priest is to be sent out as one who is part of his living temple, his people who has the presence of God just within us, so that even just by being in others' presence, we are being a kingdom of priests together. Bad news here was very, very bad, wasn't it? It was very, very pessimistic, about as bad as it could be, certainly in a world that wants to imagine that humanity is basically good. It's antithetical. And yet... The good news is better than you could possibly dare hope. It's, it's better than every good intention and desire that our world has to see community, to see reconciliation, that are good, right, holy aims that will never be met outside of Christ, that will only be met in Christ. His people, the church, is the place above all places in which we might see that life in all its fullness, not just for me, but together with one another. This is what it is to be the church. Church is not a place that you come to. You haven't come to church this morning, whether coming to church this morning looked like walking the sort of 50 paces from your bed to your sofa, or whether it looked like coming down to showcase. You haven't come to church this morning. You are the church. You are it. And we're not like a family. We are a family. And this is all that God has done for us to make us family whole.
together again. Let me pray for us and then we will um, sing our closing song together. Amazing grace. And it will be a, a fitting way to reflect on, on, on all that God has spoken to us through his word. Father God, we thank you for your wondrous grace and love and mercy towards this very, well, I was going to say very difficult. It's impossible to understand. It's impossible to wrap my head around. Um, and yet, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to, to begin to try and to have our hearts shaped and warmed and reminded of, of all that you've done for us. Lord, we must confess before we can accept all the wonderful glorious riches of your grace for us all the great good news we do have to confront that bad news we do have to realize just how bad it was just how dead we were just how utterly hopeless we are apart from you and so lord we thank you that your response in the face of that was not to leave us not to wash your hands of us but to send your son. That Jesus, your response to this would be to come and to give your life for us, to atone for all of our sin, to forgive us and to set us free to live in new life and just blessing after blessing of your grace. And Lord, we thank you for building us together as a, as a church. And Lord, we pray for your help, you know, to be able to be this people like you uh, speak of here, you know, a place in which everybody is welcome, a place in which we're defined first and foremost by who we are in Christ, not where we've come from, not what we've done, not our income level, our education level, or, or whatever else, you know, all those different things that at times we can, we can find ways to, uh, to find differences with one another in the world around us. Lord, might we be a place in which actually we see radical um, gospel-centered community in which actually we're incredibly diverse, um, but one in, in Christ. And we just thank you for the amazing privilege it is to, to be part of your family, to not be close to the family or, or just outside of the family, but to be part of the family. We're in the house. We're not in the caravan on the driveway. We're in the house. And Lord, we just thank you so much for the reality of what that costs. Holy Spirit, I just pray. Uh, you would impress that upon our hearts uh, this, this day and this, this week, Lord. It's very hard for me in, in, in words to do justice to it. And I'm much aware of my inability in so many ways to, to really do that very well. So Spirit asks that you would uh, make up for my uh, lack and, and you would just impress that upon us, our hearts, Lord. And to, we might see that reflected in, in, in how we go about this week, Lord, in, in all the different things that we do, knowing that we come bringing your presence and offering your peace to people and people who are desperately in need of it and Lord maybe different degrees of being uh, away from you some of them nearer some of them further but either way needing to hear of your wondrous love and grace towards us so Lord I pray yeah just continue to impress that upon our hearts where we know that all of that uh, truth that wonderful reconciliation is true for us it's not just true for other people who we look at and think are so much better it's true for us just as much as anyone else and so yeah we pray that you would mold us lord and shape us to to your people that we might be faithful witnesses in the world in which you put us for your glory we ask it amen